Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's just invite the presence of God. Lord, we know you're already here, but we invite you to make us aware of your presence right now. Illuminate our minds. May we see and be changed by your truth as a community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today we finish our vision series, okay? This is week 10 of 10, uh, all about what it means to be a community of Jesus apprentices together in San Diego. And yes, we just opened up with a reading from Genesis, okay, the first book of the Bible. Some of you guys are like, aren't we in Colossians? I don't get that. That was, that was too much of a curveball for me. Um, yes, for the past few weeks, we've been flying over Paul's letter to Colossians uh, at 30,000 feet, taking in a snapshot of what the church should look like and applying it to our lives. But for this last Sunday of this series, we're exploring this idea, this, this big picture idea, that to do what Jesus did, to be his disciple, means to live, at, to live as Jesus' family for the sake of the world. Do you have slide two here? To live as Jesus' family, that's part one. Why? Well, for the sake of the world, part two. And, and so in order to get this full picture, we have to go back to the beginning where God gives this vision to the first family of faith, the family of Abraham, okay? So in the text, God calls him Abram. We know him better as Abraham. That's how his name turns out. And God basically says to Abraham, hey, leave your previous family behind. Leave your old life, your old customs, your old habits, and go to the new. I'm leading you to the new where you're going to be the family of God now, and I'm going to bless you with my presence so that you can go bless every other family on earth with my presence. This is the mission and, and, and this is the promise that kicks off Israel's story. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham's family failing <laughs> at this, just miserably failing at bringing God's faithfulness and presence and light to the nations. Um, but God never fails. He keeps pursuing his family. And finally, we get to the New Testament, and God steps into the family himself in Jesus, this Jewish teacher who was also God in the flesh. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus actually redefines family. He redefines family. In Matthew 12, there's this profound moment where Jesus is approached by someone. It just says someone came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. They kind of thought he was nuts. And they're like, you should come home before you kill yourself. You're weird. Come home. Let's get you better. And, uh, and Jesus, he takes some step back, basically, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And it's like, ooh, burn, kind of. It's like, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he points to his disciples and he says, right here. Here they are. Whoever does the will of my father, these disciples are my brother. And he, ha he adds, and sister and mother. So according to Jesus, the true family, true, what it means to be family is no longer defined by blood or by 
birthright, but by trust in God and by baptism. So now the family of faith is now, we, as Jesus' family, we're supposed to be the truest expression of what family means to all the world. And this is actually God's vision originally to Abraham, right? Like he pulls Abraham out of pagan obscurity and says, leave the old family. I'm making you something new that's going to redeem all the families. I'm going to start with your family. And it's a vision God had. And it's, this vision is being realized through Jesus. Because after Jesus is crucified, risen from the dead, he ascends to the Father and he blesses his family with his spirit. And in one day, his family grows from 120 people to 3,000 people. 3,000 disciples on the first day of the church. That's Jesus' family. It's crazy. And from that moment on, the family's not just Jewish anymore. And it doesn't just grow through childbirth anymore. Now the family is this multi-ethnic, worldwide organism that grows wherever people confess Jesus as king, repent, and are baptized into his family. That's why we're gonna have baptisms right here. December 1st, actually. If you've never been baptized into Jesus' family, December 1st, that's two weeks from today, you are invited to follow Jesus into the water and come up out of the water identified with Jesus, sharing in Jesus' love relationship with the Father and sharing in this brother-sister unit called the family of God. So if you've never stepped into the waters, let December 1st be your day. There's already someone signed up for it, which is amazing. So we're for sure going to celebrate at least one. Um, and so they would be baptized at these ancient family meals. The church started having these family meals. See the table? All the tables all around the room, this is that same meal. We've never stopped having this meal. For most of church history, it's been weekly in the main gatherings. And uh, within a few short decades of the church's birthday, there are like countless family meals happening across the cities of the Roman Empire. So just a few short decades, you have Colossae, the city in modern Turkey, where the famous apostle Paul hears about this amazing family, church. He, he hears about this church from prison, and he writes this letter to encourage them to teach them how to live, not the old way, but the new way. And, and he, he never knew Colossae. He never knew these people, just like he never knew Park Hill. And yet, this letter carries this apostolic authority that we're supposed to be shaped after, which is profound. And in this letter to Colossae, his whole point, since God has made you family, now act like it. You have the Spirit's power to actually act like God's culture, not the old culture anymore. And here's why, because when you're being the family, you will bless the city, you'll be a blessing. I love Commonwealth, Commonwealth Church over in Golden Hill. I think they just moved to Claremont. Nick and Carrie Fox are amazing. And that's their church's motto, be the family, bless the city. I love that. That's right here, biblical theology. Such a fan of that statement. And this is the theme for today. Let's be the family for the sake of the city because Colossae and San Diego need to know how good this family is. So if you're not a follower of Jesus here, welcome. This is the family meal. Repent, be baptized. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is why we're here. Let's live like it for the sake of the city. So can we put that slide three up on the screen? Because that is what we're after. That's part one. See the first half of that statement? 
live as Jesus' family. And so that's gonna be part one of this teaching. We're gonna go through that real quick. And we're gonna end on for the city. That's part two. So part one, to make this crystal clear, living as family, Paul leads us right up to the doorstep of an actual Greco-Roman house. Like he speaks right into the relationship between a husband and a wife, parent and a child, and even a slave and a master, because that was very common back then. More on that in a second. And he's saying, we're not gonna live like culture has told you to. There's new house rules in this family. Uh, so as we dive into this, remember, <laughs> remember, this is Paul writing to an ancient context where men were totally dominant in society. You think, you know, sexism is alive and well today, which it is. Uh, you should have seen it back then. A whole nother ball game where men were f- just legally so much higher, higher value than women and children and especially slaves. And so Paul's saying, here's how we act in this house. It's not gonna be like it was. So let's dive in. Verse 18, Colossians 3, verse 18. Let's get there. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Literally, their their heart will get lost. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know you also have a master in heaven. Nothing controversial here at all. Absolutely nothing, no triggers. This is totally easy sailing. Um, Again, in a nutshell, let me sum up just the nutshell first. This is what Paul is saying. And he's using these relational pairs to say it. The mutuality, this new life together is now mutuality. It's a two-way street of self-giving love now. This is reciprocal, two ways. Where there was one-way dominance before, now in the family of Jesus, it's all about two-way, mutual, self-giving love. I love how New Testament scholar Douglas Moo unpacks this section. He says this, Paul elaborates some of the ways in which the Christian community is to live out of its identity as the new self, the new humanity that God is creating in and according to Christ. The essence of this new humanity is mutuality. In the new self, there's no longer Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave. He's like, these hierarchies don't exist the way they used to in this family. He says, Christians are therefore to view themselves as members of one body within which an attitude of consideration and love for one another should prevail. 
And so Paul shows us this very practically through an ancient Greco-Roman family unit here, which, remember, again, was a society dominated by males. So Paul's going against the grain of the culture in that day. And and just a, a quick word on husbands and wives here. He says, to sum up, he says, wives and husbands, to sum up, submit to one another in love. This is the essence of what he's saying. Why do I say that? Because Paul himself sums up this message to husbands and wives this way when he walks through the same exact content in his letter to Ephesus. So there's a line right before Paul gets into wives and husbands stuff in Ephesus. There's a line that he adds at the beginning as a banner, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's an Ephesians letter. And then he goes into specifics for husbands and wives, but it's under that banner. This is the heading. This is the controlling phrase. And so Paul's saying, mutuality is the point. Sex difference is inseparable from marriage. Being male and female is part of what marriage is. But sex hierarchy is not. This is what Paul is saying. Wives and husbands are to be united in mutual self-giving love for one another, okay? And, and he makes the same point with a different pair, and that's parents and children. The Greek word there is fathers, but again, it's a male-dominated society, and, and they didn't have the word parent. They would just say fathers. So, so we, can, this, we can apply this as parents and children, and to sum up, he's saying respect each other. Respect each other, parents and children, two-way. For kids, loving and respecting your parents means obeying them without cutting corners, right? And for parents, loving your kids means not crushing their soul. <laughs> like, like for parents, like it seems like a minimal ask, like just keep them alive, okay, he's saying. Um, but honestly, ask parents of a willful, socially active, hormonally exploratory teenager. Ask that parent how they're doing, how it's all going for them. And I guarantee you, they'll be like, I'm just trying not to mess them up. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep them. That's, like, I'm, I'm, that's me aiming high right now. And, and so this is, all joking aside, this is to Paul's greater point. This life is life as the new family of Jesus. We are united with Christ equally and empowered by the Spirit to keep loving one another well. This is how we become the healing presence of Jesus for the city. It starts right in here in the intimate fabric of our closest relationships. And it's hard work. It's hard work to love well. It takes intentionality, attentive listening, and acting consistently other-centered. I'll repeat, consistently other-centered. That's hard. We can even deceive ourselves into thinking we are other-centered when really it's still about us. So then Paul applies this idea of mutuality. He, he takes it into the relationship of slaves and masters, which, of course, naturally feels super weird to us today. But what Paul is doing here, he's actually gutting slavery from the inside and he's laying the groundwork for the abolition of slavery, really. So, so to sum this up, Paul says basically, hey, slaves and masters, respect one another in love since everyone's true master is Jesus. 
This is the essence of what he's saying. And it still sounds weird, right? Like, why doesn't he just say, like, slaves are free, I will not have it anymore, or whatever. Um, It sounds weird what he's saying to our modern ears, and for good reason. We're Americans, right? Which means most of us, maybe, sorry if you're not an American, I just excluded you with language, Uh, but... But most of us in this room are American, which means we're standing on this side of the American enslavement of Africans, which lasted two and a half centuries, which was followed by Jim Crow and racism and segregation for another 101 years legally, which has now, many many sociologists are saying, which is now taking the form of the mass incarceration of a disproportionate number of black males, which many sociologists are calling the new Jim Crow. This is the environment we are reading the Bible in. And so we approach the slavery texts in the Bible with our American story in our view. And so naturally, we read verses from Paul like, slaves and masters just get get along or whatever. Like, we read that verse, we're like, how could he say that? It seems like he's endorsing the status quo in some weird way. But hold on, pause. We need to see what's actually happening here. Because when we come to the, there's a lot of slavery passages in the Bible, actually. And when we come to them, we have to check our lenses. Just like, take your American lens off and look at it. So, in the American South, what was the heart of the injustice of slavery? It was that you had one, right? It was, you had one group saying, we're the good elite group and the rest of you are lesser humans, only good for this. That's the essence. That's the dark heart of the injustice of slavery. So in the American story, our picture of slavery is bound up in race. It's like we white people are more progressive and industrious and you dark-skinned people are really not up to par, so we need to protect you and take care of you and give you basic labor because you are a lesser human after all. This is the nice thing to do. And out of that mindset came the slave trade and buying and selling black bodies and everything else. The fundamental problem here is seeing some humans as lesser than others. And this is still the way it is in many cultures today. Just, I mean, the, the caste system in India is literally baked into their society by their philosophy. There are inherently lesser people in that culture, in the mindset. So what Jesus and Paul do here is they absolutely destroy the system of slavery from the inside by saying to the slave owners, hey, 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 in this family, that person working for you, yeah, they're working for you, but that person working for you is a full human being who worships your master, (laughs) the same master. So you gotta treat your slave as a fellow full human being, all right? All right, got it, got it, this is Paul. And so in Christianity, when that message hits the Roman Empire with this message of family, this new picture, then slavery stops being slavery. And it becomes like employment, like fair, loving employment. And and even better than that, it becomes adoption. And it becomes family. It's interesting today, sometimes employment, sometimes in our culture, employment is treated like slavery because it's the same kind of injustice where people in the workplace see themselves as more intelligent, more progressive, more valuable than others. And that's the fundamental issue here that Paul's addressing. Jesus and Paul, and the Old Testament too for that matter, speak directly to the core of slavery. 
They don't necessarily speak to the political outworkings, like what should Caesar do at the next election cycle, you know? But they speak at the core. It's interesting. Here in Colossians, here in Colossians 4.9, by the way, Paul mentions a guy named Onesimus. Yes. Do you know who Onesimus is? Onesimus was a slave. He was a slave, and we learn this from another, another letter that Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon. Onesimus belonged to Philemon, and they both are Christians now. Onesimus becomes a Christian, and Paul writes a letter to his owner, and he's like, hey, Philemon. It's in the Bible. You can read this letter. He's like, it's real short. He's like, hey, Philemon, your guy, Onesimus, he's now my son in the faith, which means he's now your brother in the faith, and I'm actually, he's a runaway, but I'm sending him back to you, which means I'm going to hear a really nice story about you welcoming him as a brother, right? Or else, or else. Like, like so, so, he, so he doesn't do what our modern minds would love to see. He doesn't go out and bang on Caesar's door per se, but what he does is far more effective, far more effective. In fact, Paul talks about him right here in Colossians 4 verse 9. He says this, Tychicus, who's coming with Onesimus, and he goes, our faithful dear brother, who is one of you, he's pouring it on. And next slide, this is Paul ripping out the heart of slavery because the real problem is the injustice of treating somebody as a lesser human being. Paul's solution is that we'd live as a family of mutual love for one another, and the city sees that and is transformed, shocked, or violently resists or something. The city doesn't even know what to do with this. And this is how God, that is how God undercuts the systems of evil in the world through the church, you guys. In fact, all the work against slavery, virtually all of it came almost exclusively through people working from a Christian worldview. That's just the data. And this is the major point Paul is making. In the new family of Jesus, we treat all human beings as divine image bearers, equally in need of grace. And we live out this reality first here, right here in your communities, your Park Hill communities, and in the gatherings. And then you take that culture into the city once it's in your bones. And so right here, you guys, this is where Paul pivots from part one to part two. So part one, he's like, live as families, focused inward, and now he pivots outward, and he says, this whole thing is for the sake of this city. So check it out. Verse two of chapter four, he says this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Come on. This is his final, his final commission in this letter. All the rest after this is like, uh, so-and-so says hi, so, and so-and-so greets you. Um, but this is the last teaching moment. And the first thing he says, devote to prayer. That word devote, in my life as a Christian, in the Bible, that word devote was the most overlooked. I think of Acts 2.42. 
and they devoted themselves to doctrine, uh, breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. I always focused on the things they did, not how they did it. They did it in a covenant. Like, you're holding me to this. I will be at church. If I'm not, you will hear a call from me. I will see that your needs are met if I have the capacity to meet them. If not, then I've broken covenant. Like, I will meet with you for prayer at our weekly meeting. My life depends on it. My soul is hanging on this. If I don't, there's something wrong. This was the ethos in the ancient church. Devote covenant to prayer, which means a commitment. It's like a regimen, which grates against our commitment-phobic, transient, cultural moment we're in. But he's like, regimen this stuff. Be watchful, be intentional. There's so much intentionality here in this, in this paragraph we just saw. So question, just to help this sink in, how attentive are you in prayer? How intentional? Like, this has been a major theme throughout the vision series. From week one, prayer has been front and center, like we abide in the vine through consciously engaging with God through prayer. I love what F.D. Bruner says, prayer is faith breathing. How are you breathing? How's your, how's your spiritual blood pressure? How's your breathing in prayer? How's that going for you? Let me ask, what does your prayer rhythm look like? I've said this before, and I, I, it's true, I personally, personally am not surviving as a Christian person without some kind of daily conscious connection with God through prayer. I don't know how people do it. I'm not casting judgment. I can't, speaking for myself. Paul specifically commands us to pray in a covenanted sense. Um, and then he gives us something to pray for. I love this. He says, my friends, if you're looking at 4.2, he says, my friends, pray for clarity in gospel preaching. Like, here's the one thing I ask, that you pray that the gospel gets communicated clearly in your absence. Is this something you pray for? Is this something, like, you pray for, like, I don't know how often, I, I don't pray for this nearly enough, like, like, wake up and go, okay, Lord, I just pray that the clarity of the communication of the gospel, wherever it might happen today, you know, I just don't think that way. Imagine how that would shift my thinking and my missional outlook, as a, as a person in Christ, if I centered myself around praying that the gospel gets clarified for people, this is what Paul's asking us to do. This is what we actually uh, did this morning in pre-gathering prayer. This is why we have pre-gathering prayer, to pray that clarity flows throughout this gathering so that a culture of clarity surrounds our communication about the kingdom. That was a lot of alliteration again, man but that a culture of clarity is what we become. If we're centered around this, it's like, Lord God, I pray. Maybe, for example, Lord God, I just pray for the preaching this morning at Park Hill. Like, God, I'm on my way to Building 177. I got my pumpkin spice latte or whatever. Uh, I'm ready to witness. I don't know why I picked that drink. I'm ready to witness the gospel transforming lives. Come on, Lord. Do it. Awaken hearts. Would you fulfill your desire in our church? Let's grow in this. By the way, I can't think of a better way to like awaken my own soul. Like if I'm struggling in evangelism, like I just don't find time or I make excuses why I'm not sharing my faith. Um, I don't know if there's a better way to reorient my heart around the preaching of the message than to actually pray for the preaching of the message. Wherever it goes out, not just from a professional pastor on Sunday, 
but through your life in creative ways. Lord, I pray for creativity in my workplace, that my life would testify of your goodness somehow differently. I feel like I'm in a rut. And then Paul closes out by commanding us, and this is where we're gonna start landing the plane. He says, be wise in the way we live and speak toward outsiders. Be wise. Like that's his sign off. He's like, by the way, guys, be wise in the way you act toward those who don't eat and drink the family meal. Toward those that don't even understand what's going on here. It's a lot of people. And how do we act wisely? He, he says, by making the best use of our time. Make the most of your time. You guys, I will speak personally right now. Um, this has been a number one learning for my my life in 2019, this idea of setting aside time, uh, not like an hour a day, I'm not talking about devotions, I'm talking about viewing time as this gift that I can inhabit in a holy way that pushes God's glory forward into space, time and space. So often, Heschel, Joshua, Abraham Joseph Heschel, the, the Hebrew Jewish author, uh, I forget how his first name, but Heschel, he wrote in his book on Sabbath, he opens up by saying, we are a culture that is addicted to space. We sell away our time to get more space. Space and time are both gifts from God, but we've undervalued time. We've cut ourselves off at the knees. We give away time till the point where we don't have any more and we're hurried and we're sacrificing our humanity so we can get space. Bigger offices to make us bigger bank accounts for bigger houses and bigger rims on our cars or whatever, like a bigger occupied space in the world. And we're always giving away our time for it when actually time is the thing that God builds up his whole creation to on the seventh day when he rests and says, be with me here. And so make the most of this time, this is number one for me, and there are things happening in my heart I'm still finding words to communicate for the sake of God's mission. And you guys, we can talk about the practices and prayer and fasting and silence and community meals and all these, all these practices of Jesus, preaching the gospel, worship, bread and cup, and I know it's hard sometimes. <laughs> like It's hard to do them all. We get busy. We'll like focus on one and like drop the other eight and beat ourselves up and feel condemned or whatever. And it would be way easier to just shut off and binge watch Disney Plus or something or whatever's, whatever instead of, instead of chasing after the things of God with the time that we have. Like, man, when I look at God's plan for the ages to save and heal like, I look back at Abraham, and I see how God unfolds this story through a family with seven days a week to give to the kingdom, and I focus on this plan and realize I'm a part of it. I'm like, what else is there? Like, really? What else? I mean, really, Paul's, the world is watching, he's saying. God is on the move. What else is there? Make the most of the moments in time. Either I'll be dead before I plan it, or... Jesus is going to appear and make everything new already. So anyway, in the meantime, I'm, am I really going to go another day without consciously living in the presence of God and delighting in his rich goodness and love in my life and in the lives of my family and for my neighbors? Be wise in the way we live toward the outside, making the most of the time that we have. Because the fact is, guys, there are people 
around me and you all the time who have zero framework for Christianity. Like maybe they've removed themselves from the church altogether because of woundedness or abuse or feeling unwelcome to process their confusion around sexuality or doubt or grief or loss. Paul's like, be wise toward the outside. Those that are longing to belong. Let my conversation be full of grace. So let me ask very practically, who's the outsider in your world? Maybe it's literally family, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, great time to circle back with them. Maybe it's at work, actual neighbors, students, your boss. Take a moment right now and ask yourself, in what way, Paul says be wise toward them, so let me ask it negatively. In what way have I been living unwisely toward them, uncreatively, unthoughtfully. It could be as simple as not calling that family member back enough. It's always them calling me. This is my problem. I'm so thoughtless. Like I'm really wise. I can be wise in the way I act toward my agenda and my budget, my personal schedule, my financial stewardship, my own house, my domain, but toward people outside that. Maybe it's, how are you acting unwisely? Maybe it's not being creative and sharing your faith with your coworkers and classmates. So still, maybe still not knowing your next door neighbor's name. What would it look like to live more wisely toward these incredible human beings that are right in our sphere? This is not a guilt trip at all. I'm right here with you guys. God is currently speaking to me to make the most of every moment in my life with God for the sake of the poor and the vulnerable and for my across the street neighbor who doesn't like me parking in front of his house on our tiny street. He laid into me once and I hope I acted wisely back. Um, Be wise in the way you act. We wanna be a church growing in this. Being the family that's blessed with the presence of God to bless our city with his presence. So here it is, announcement time. We're we are hitting the runway now. We're coming to the table. And here's the two announcements. Number one, we are, in, in the spirit of this, be the family, bless the city, we're going to do something a little different on the first Sunday of 2020. Like the first fruits of the year, the first Sunday of the year. We will be giving January 5th, 2020, as, as City Serves Sunday. So we're giving back to the city with our time and our resources, which means no gathering here on Sunday morning. So if you come to church here on, on normally, then you have the time that morning to do this because <laughs> we won't be here. So instead of gathering here on Sunday, we'll tangibly serve the city in various ways. We're partnering with Generate Hope, which is a beautiful organization that creates safe places for survivors of sex trafficking so we can actually sign up our communities And even if you're not in a community, get some people to clean, paint, do yard work for two different safe houses here in the city. Shop for supplies, maybe, for each location and drop off. Uh, Or donate goods if you can't be present on that day. So that's one. Another, San Diego Rescue Mission. Serve the homeless in various measurable ways in relationship. Another one, Safe Park by Jewish Family Services. We've had several communities already doing this. It's beautiful. There's a parking lot in Claremont that exists for the sole purpose of people without homes, but they have cars, to park their car overnight and sleep. 
they don't have anywhere else to go. Drive around in the day and park in their, sleep in their cars at night. And so you can sign up to bring a meal, actually bring a meal, and then sit and eat with them. And we've had communities do that repeatedly now, and you get to know their name, and you can like check back. How was that doctor's appointment for your kid? How are you doing now? It's good to see you again, and relationships with the poor and vulnerable will happen. So, so this is, I'm can't believe, so excited about this. More details coming in the coming weeks. Obviously, Baptism Sunday in January will be pushed to January 12th, because that's the first Sunday we'll be in this building. But January 5th, 2020, First Sunday of the year, instead of gathering, Park Hill will spread out across the city, tangibly serving in Jesus' name to be the family that blesses our city. Does that sound good? Okay, yeah. So visit the Connect desk to stay in the loop. You're going to want to hear about those changes and everything. We are all called to this. All of us. So finally, the second thing, as we move towards communion, um, Paul says one more thing in this letter that seems insignificant at first, but the implications are massive. It's, it's this little line after he says goodbye to all the names. It's a simple line. Slide 13. Can you put it up? Paul says this. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Why is that important? Right here in this little moment, Paul tells us what to do in church. He tells us what to do in church. He's like, hey, Colossians, when you're done reading this letter, it works in Laodicea too. And then when Laodicea is done with theirs, you read theirs because it's going to work. This is Paul circulating scripture right here. This is why Park Hill Church reads and obeys Paul's letters, even though they weren't even written to us. This is why they're for us. Implications are huge. For Paul and for Jesus who sent Paul, there's something about these letters that convey the authority of the Trinity to shape his family. And so, well, I know that raises all kinds of questions about how the Bible works and how authority is conveyed. We can talk about that all next year because here's the, here's the announcement. Starting January 12th, <laughs> and, and for most of the 2020 year, we will be walking through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians as a community. Okay, 1 Corinthians, Park Hill Church 2020. We're gonna let this letter shape us down into our bones. I am so excited about this. Like, my wife recently came to me and she's like, she's like, Evan, in, it seems like right now, the conversations we're having with you guys in San Diego and at Park Hill Church, specifically here, so many of you are hungry to have conversations around like, church unity and celebrity culture, preachers and sneakers kind of stuff, and, and LGBTQ and divorce and singleness and Christian freedom and women, women in leadership and the gifts of tongues. How does that work? Am I supposed to use that gift? <laughs> I don't want to or whatever. But Paul says I should want to. And the gift of prophecy. And listen, all of those questions are literally what Paul is answering just in 1 Corinthians. It's beautiful. And so for about 40 weeks, we're going to have a baby. <laughs> no, 40 weeks. So for, but, but seriously, we're going we're gonna to work through this thing. In about 40 weeks through 2020, 
I believe God will, I know it's a cheesy metaphor, but I, I think he will birth this new thing. I actually do. Uh, I'm super tacky with that, but I actually think it's true. I think 1 Corinthians is gonna make us change. I think as we submit to this book for 40 weeks and really get behind it and underneath it, let it get underneath us, I think this church is going to change the way God wants it to. And we're gonna respond in obedience to what it says, not just individually, but like as leaders and make changes if we see this command coming through in that way. So, so that's it, that's our vision series. You guys, we just finished our vision series. And can you, can you do that last slide? Slide 15, be with Jesus. Become like Jesus, do what he did. You guys, those aren't three steps to Jesusiness. They're not three rungs on a ladder that get you somewhere better with God necessarily in, in some like, like three formulaic step sense. All of those things are happening all the time in all of us. And sometimes God is gonna invite you to be with him. Rediscover your first love, you lost intimacy. Come back, remember who you are, beloved daughter, beloved son. Sometimes they'll call you to change. And the Spirit's like, hey, there's a character issue that you need prayer for and you need practices for. And some of you are gonna be called to like get, get some crap done for the king. Like go and actually get involved in Safe Park. Get involved in what God is doing and, and do what he did. And Jesus will emphasize these things in different ways for all of us. We live in a secular city and God is calling us to be the family of Jesus. And one way to describe this family, John Mark Comer, I love how he, I love how he sums up the church. Uh, he says, a community, we are a community of followers of Jesus seeking to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and apply them to the soil of a post-Christian world. I love that word, seeking. You guys, we're just trying to figure this out. We're just trying to be humble and open to the spirit and admit when we all mess up at, at the leadership level everywhere because we're like a living laboratory where Jesus is expressing his love to San Diego through us. It takes time to grow by the power of the spirit. It takes time. Trust the Holy Spirit. Lean into his influence in your life. That's the point. So can we stand together?